Jardim Sonoro. Audio Garden. Jardim Musical. Jardim Audio. Jardino del Audio. Presencing Instituto. Gaia. Stepping into the decade of transformation. S'engager dans la décennie de la transformation. Entrando na década de transformação. All right, so let's maybe just take take a little moment of stillness before we jump in and to land in this moment. And I'm picturing a little bit, John, kind of, I remember when I uh, arrived in Crestone, kind of this small little wonderful group and you're holding the space for them. And I'm now uh, imagining all of our like uh, many thousand people kind of uh, for this gathering kind of arriving uh, but you know they're in different places they are not coming in, in into one space but but still they are like um, uh, a little bit in need of guidance and, and looking for guidance really which is um, why um, uh, why we are turning to you John, thank you so much for uh, uh, making uh, the time for us. Um, you played um, an instrumental role in the birth of the environmental movement from the early 1960s. Your book, uh, Future Environments of North America, was the first to use the word environment to describe a cultural paradigm shift into a responsible ecological view of our oneness with Earth. And uh, a little later in the early 70s, you were the first ecologist uh, on staff uh, at the White House, right? At a pivotal time, we all know back then the EPA was created. Uh, and back then, kind of uh, with your involvement, uh, we really saw uh, the creation of the legal basis of the environmental movement. And then later, uh, uh, you turned, uh, or shortly after, your main attention kind of uh, when once that legal basis for the environmental movement was in place, you turned your attention on creating the spiritual basis for the environmental movement. And uh, so I wonder now, um, you know, 50 years on, uh, 50, 60 plus years on, How do you look back at the the current moment? And what was it back then? Uh, I think it was must have been somewhere in the 70s that prompted you to, to move on from the legal basis for the env environmental movement to the spiritual basis. And what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a really good question, Otto. Um, I should mention that I did begin doing a deep retreat in nature a vision quest type of retreat, um, generally sort of a Native American style because my family had uh, were strongly influenced by Native American culture. And <clears throat> we even used an agricultural system based on Native American practices. 
So I did my first vision quest at age seven. And um, then after that, began doing it at least once a year, sometimes two or three times. And that was, so from seven through my, right on through my teens, I was doing very deep uh, spiritual cultivation, utilizing initially the vision quest process. And uh, then uh, beginning to train in those cultural systems that I felt had a, a strong nature connectivity to them. And that was especially in things like Zen Buddhism, Taoism, mystical Christianity, um, <clears throat> and then many indigenous cultures. My first human teacher was a shaman from the Mayan uh, culture in Yucatan. When was that? What was your age back then when you met? I was, uh, I must have been about 18, 18 or 19, and I, I lived with him for a year in the rainforest. And uh, it was an amazing experience for a young kid. But um, so I, I should clarify that I did have a little bit of a uh, that other current flowing through my life right from the start. And I, I remember I asked my, it's kind of funny, I asked my, my uh, parents and grandparents, um, I wanted to have permission to go out and do this solo in nature. And of course, that was a little strange in, in those days. And um, <clears throat> So they said, well, maybe next year. I think I started asking around four or five. And so they put me off year by year until finally I reached age seven. And then they said, okay, son, grandson, you're, you're ready. So we'll put you out. And then I had a short immersion of four or five nights and days. Wow. Went very deep. And, and that experience bonded me so deeply with the trees, with the flowers, with the animals, with the plants, with the elements of nature that I came out having been through kind of almost like a, a second birth out mm. of the body or the womb of nature herself mm. into, into life. And it affected my entire life from that point on. And that in many ways <clears throat> was the motivating experience that led me to decide to study the science of ecology uh, in those days back in the, in the 50s when I began doing that. When uh, people asked me what I was studying, I said ecosystem ecology, and I got a blank stare. <laughs> and uh, people thought it was some maybe like entomology, the study of bugs, or they couldn't they couldn't reference it. The word was not in use, and or not, not very widely. So, um, uh, but that really inspired me to go into ecology because there's the science of natural systems. Here's how nature arises an, as an interconnected whole. And also here is how we can begin to view nature, not just as something we take from as a resource, but as something that we participate in as a partner, mm. as a co-equal partner, like a member of a family. And so it became an important foundation for my work. And then that led to quite naturally to how do we, how do we get this out and about into broad human culture? And I was very inspired by uh, Rachel Carson, who wrote a book called Silent Spring. And um, <clears throat> there's another book that uh, Fearful Osborne wrote in 48 called Our Plundered Planet. And then after that came a book called Man's Fate in Changing, Changing the Face of the Earth. Those three books really made me realize that we really needed to create some kind of uh, bigger understanding of the whole system which ecology had helped refine and were the vision quest experience. I mean, I, I was the entire system. So we had the experiential foundation with the vision quest process and then the scientific foundation with the study of ecology and ecosystems. And I specialized in tropical ecology and Arctic ecology to see the contrast between the two types of systems. Uh, but <clears throat> out of that, um, I look for a word that uh, might describe in popular culture a whole system perspective where we're part of that system, not just a taker coming in and mm. using it as a resource. And uh, environment seemed to be a good candidate. And by that time, I was working with the Conservation Foundation, which later was absorbed by the World Wildlife Fund. And um, <clears throat> I ended up directing their international programs for a while. But one of the very first projects I did there was uh, to put together a gathering of leaders 
from many different backgrounds, uh, regional planning, economics, biology, and so on. And um, each of them were leaders in those, those fields. We brought them together to address these whole system issues, which were beginning to emerge that Rachel Carson so beautifully talked about, and also Fairfield Osborne in our planet. planet. And um, then we uh, uh, had each, each individual had, had a day to present how their discipline and their background and their approach would solve these whole system issues. At the end of the week of uh, sharing these different approaches, and they were pre-prepared so people had plenty of time to really think it through. When we came together and people, each one of those systems that were taking parts of the environment or parts of nature and taking responsibility for it, trying to come up with a, a, a healthier, more sustainable and um, ecologically balanced approach. It wasn't happening through any particular one discipline. So we came together at the end and realized that we needed to really have a word around which we could all gather and the disciplines could bring their their skills to bear, but mm. from an interconnected whole, where mm. all the systems came together. So we, the word we chose was environment, mm. which is a word, of course, in proper usage, but it was not precisely used in the way to describe that whole system partnership of humans and nature working together as a, as a big family. And fortunately that conference, because it had so many leaders from all over the world, it was able to uh, kind of really give that word a, a quite a big boost into the culture. And suddenly it began showing up in universities and different uh, public policy situations and contexts. And uh, I think we had the big gathering where we brought all these leaders together in 65. And then uh, we had a book published, uh, edited a book that took all the proceedings that together. And uh, the combination of all, all that uh, led to a pretty massive wave of the usage of that word to describe the whole system of perspective. And, uh, and of course, by the late 60s, the environmental movement uh, really caught fire and, and spread around the world. Uh, and I'd like to think that work played a small catalytic role in helping that to happen. And I have to really credit, frankly, the uh, going deep into nature with with my, my the help of my parents and grandparents in my early days is really the inspiration to get that, that, that going. Mm. It's very interwoven with the spiritual side. Mm. Wow, thank you for... Um for sharing that and uh, for sharing how um, what you do, what you have led thousands of people, including myself, right, through which is uh, uh, a sacred journey uh, with nature as a teacher, right, and how to progress on that journey, how that is really uh, embodied in your own life, right? You as a five-year-old demanding that and then as a, starting as a seven-year-old beginning to practice that, going to universities, you know, seeing all the language of uh, uh, interdependence, but also missing some other dimensions, right? And then creating a social field, right? With all these different scientists uh, uh, and, and pioneers of that movement that wasn't even a movement back then, uh, where through that social process, maybe kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that spark or that, that potential kind of for, for catalyzing this bigger um, global movement, which then I experienced later. So uh, uh, wh wh where that happened and where that got sparked. So I um, received in my own life the tail end of that, right? Mm -hmm. So in the, uh, in, in the, The environmental movement was a massive movement in the late 70s when I was a teenager. And so it mobilized um, everyone. I mean, to, as far as I'm concerned, in my generation, right? Everyone I was connected with, at least, right? So, so there's, um, uh, so there's, um, uh, it is always interesting to look back at the beginnings. And yet, much of that kind of what we saw back then and what I experienced there also was uh, the outer dimension of that movement, right? So that, so in, in, in my case, it was kind of the anti-nuclear uh, power plant, uh, anti-nuke movement, and so on and so forth. 
So, so back to the question, yes, your, the interior dimension was uh, already built into your childhood experience, but, but how then, what, what is your own account when you um, look from today's perspective where a lot more people are actually looking for a deeper, everyone feels like just the outer environmental things, that's not enough. We, we need to somehow... Uh, develop the resonance, develop the language, de develop the, 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 and cultivate the interior connection, that spiritual path to Gaia, kind of to, to Mother Earth. How is it um, that um, that movement, the second part of that movement, that mm -hmm. was, um, you know, maybe incipient back then, how that happened from your own uh, perspective? Because over the past decades, you have been um, teaching this uh, path To, for nature as, as a teacher and, and for this uh, sacred awareness for so many years. So what, what is your own account on that? So how, how, uh, how, how do you see that uh, becoming part of the first part of the environmental movement? <clears throat> well, I should mention that um, I got very involved with uh, public policy as well as uh, helping get the term environment going. And um, so I was very much involved with helping things like the Environmental Policy Act. In particular, that was one of the, the first things that I and a fellow named Sam Ordway and, and one of the fellow <clears throat> published some early articles on the need for some kind of entity that could take into account the impact of federally supported uh, programs and processes and do a review of the impact of those those projects so that we could know what was going on and look into the ecological and social and uh, and uh, economic impacts after the project was done. So um, I got very involved with helping the Environmental Policy Act. In part, that came out of that conference mm. early book I mentioned. And we did another project, which I ran between uh, – um, 19, I guess that would have been 1967 through uh, about 10 years, starting in 1967. And this was looking into doing Harvard cell case studies of the major development types of projects all over the planet. So we produced, using the Harvard case study approach, 200 case studies of the actual impact of humans on the planet. And with very good evidence of exactly how the impacts were hitting ecologically, socially, and economically. Mm. And then uh, by the time we compiled all that, we uh, brought it together into a gathering again. I think we held that in 68. And we looked into the, uh, and that was a gathering that looked into these massive impacts. And the case studies showed the, uh, were case studies of what happened after the project, 5, 10, 15, or 20 years later. And nothing was being done to do that kind of environmental review. So obviously, there was a need to have a, a legislative process that could take that on and do it. And the Environmental Policy Act established the, the, Council, on, the Council on Environmental Quality came into being under the administration. But then the EPA was formed. And that had the responsibility to carry on that process of assessing impacts. And then that idea began to spread around the planet. And I should say that uh, the this database of these 200 case studies then became a database for the United Nations Conference on the Environment, the first one that was ever held by the UN in Stockholm in 1972. So that body of scientific evidence then became a basis for that, that, that gathering. And that really got the environmental movement going globally and the policy making and legal uh, aspect established as a global process. I noticed as many of my associates who were becoming involved in, in uh, the environmental movement, many of the leaders were burning out mm. and they were getting very discouraged They felt that it was not working. They were not making any headway. So I said, well, why don't you come out to my I had a little farm in West Virginia. Hmm. So I said, why don't you come on out and spend a few days? Uh, I can put you out in the woods. You can camp for a little while. You can connect to nature. I've been doing this all my life. Why don't you give it a try? 
it might be helpful to you. And so I began taking various leaders and individuals out who were burning out. Hmm. And what happened was I noticed when they came back in, they were re-inspired, reconnected. And suddenly that well of inspiration and creativity began to rise from deep within. And um, <clears throat> so they made a connection to source, basically. And they connected with outer nature, inner nature, and what I came later to call true nature. So out of that experience, I began to, in addition to my legislative work, I, I, I thought I would start investigating other cultural systems that were nature connective. And I came up with things like, of course, the Native very nature connected process. Taoism, uh, very nature connective. Uh, Nandula, the Vedanta has a very a strong foundation as the forest dwellers in ancient India, very nature connected in its origins. And uh, so I began to study in those different traditions, went to those parts of the world, and I studied deeply with the best teachers I could find. And then I began to find the common grand principles of those traditions. And I distilled that common ground material into a series of processes and practices that I brought together in something I called the way of nature, which was a common ground aspect where it was not the property of any particular culture. It was really where they all came together and what they had in common. And I found that when I provided that material, the, the training processes and the principles and the practices, and they went out into nature with that material, then they could go very, very deep when they dropped into, into that connection with outer, inner, and true nature. They could really take a deep dive into the essence of themselves. And many of those traditions also opened up true nature or the pure source aspect. So it, it provided a, a way of going very, very deep over time. And then, of course, they came out and began to integrate that material and figure out how to um, take the creativity that arose from the experience of the awareness training and the deep solo going deep, deep into that in, in nature, how they could integrate that into their life. And that translated into improving the legislative activities, improving the policy, making work, and restoring their spiritual connection to nature, which is the source of really the, the inspiration that got them to get involved in the first place. So, um, and then I noticed that, you know, I was, I was around during the Carter years when the, um, the environmental movement got a big boost. Carter was very pro-environment. <clears throat> and many of us were quite excited that maybe we actually were going to be able to accomplish something here. And then suddenly... Uh, I got well, you got a big run. report, at least. Global 2000, <laughs> right? That's right. <laughs> and uh, then, of course, we had uh, a fellow named Ronald Reagan came along. And he took the panels off the, the roof of the White House. He kind of closed down the environmental movement as best, best he could. Um, and I realized that these legislative activities and all the, all the progress we had made, very important, but it, in one administration, you could begin to see this whole thing start being rolled back. Mm. Of course, we, see, we saw it again with our, the previous administration in the States. Mm. So these things can be knocked down very quickly if you mm. get people in power that, that are able to do that. So I realized from those experiences, we need a much stronger cultural ex experiential foundation for the environmental movement if it was really going to work so that people would be coming from a much deeper place where they saw the rest of life and all living beings as, as like family. And they cared about it. They, they had that open-hearted love and compassion for the well-being of all living things as a foundational part of their being. And the only way to really, you can get that as a philosophy and think about it, but it's a whole different thing if you get that from and the cellular level of your being and you experience that as a fundamental truth. And the most powerful way to do that that I'd ever experienced was this way of nature you process that I was sharing with you the other day where you have the training, you have the depth, diving into the depth of the base of the of, of source and then you arise from that with creativity before we uh, come more to the practice john uh, uh that you just indicated 
uh, I, I want to uh, uh, double check on one distinction. You, you, you use the distinction between outer nature, inner nature, and true nature. So can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Well, of course, outer nature is this amazing, magical <clears throat> world that we, we all are born into. And this extraordinary display of the elements, earth, air, water, wind, fire, wood, and space. And um, then, of course, outer nature, uh, in my own case, I explored very deeply through the science of ecology. Biology plays a major role in that, too. Uh, but it's very different when you explore it through what you're given as your basic fundamental toolkit, which I realized when I, I began to examine what is the toolkit for examining outer nature? Well, it's sight. Sound, touch, taste, smell, uh, the experience of movement and balance, the experience of life force and energy, and then, of course, the display of emotions and thoughts in relationship to those other seven fields of experience. So I began to... Developed so our, our our senses are the tools that are given to us. So those those seven fields, uh, giving the direct experiential uh, information, and then the other two emotions and thoughts, uh, which give kind of additional information based on our emotional response and the way we think about what our senses is giving to us. So all they make up nine fields of experience. So I call them the nine experiential fields. And that allows us to really explore experientially outer nature. Mm. And then the toolkit actually resides with, not just in outer nature, but also within us. We have all of those, those perceptions and senses and experiential field capacities lie within inner nature. And so inner nature is that, that vast uh, matrix of capacities to make that connection to the outer nature aspect. And then if you if you follow the outer nature aspect and the inner nature aspect and you cultivate them deeply, refine them, then you can also begin to follow them back into where they originate internally within yourself. And that begins to unfold this boundless, uh, formless, vast, spacious uh, level of pristine open consciousness and awareness which appears to be the foundation according to most of the great spiritual traditions that's that's the foundational base of verse itself and the source of pure creativity so by simply turn the process of always just going out you turn that process around and go back in through the inner nature aspect and then point it directly back into source and if you get skilled at that then when you finally reach the point where the experiential field is touching into the most fundamental part of yourself that drops you directly into, or has the capacity or the invitation for you to then drop directly into the open, clear awareness aspect of your being. True nature. So that's the third nature, outer, inner, and true. What is it that you, um, learn that really helps while this journey from outer nature to inner nature to true nature is something that maybe many of us aspire to progress on it is with our everyday awareness often hard to do so um, what guidance can you give to us uh, uh, where we could let's say uh, in you know in a period of two to four hours or something, kind of maybe half a day where we could um, um, maybe explore a different way of connecting with the land, of connecting with uh, Mother Nature. What guidance can you give us that is helping us to progress on that journey from the outer to the inner, from the inner to the true? Wow, what a beautiful question. I love it. Um, Well, the great thing is that we, almost all of us, have some capacity to, to make a connection to outer nature, even if we live in the middle of a city. And there are gardens, there are parks, there are beautiful trees that, that we discover. So the first thing 
is to take a little time to explore. I mean, it could be your backyard even, or, or perhaps a, a garden in your home on a terrace. <clears throat> but ideally, you would want to be in contact with Mother Earth. That would be the ideal. And try to find a, a spot or a place where you can be in relative uh, peace and quiet and solitude, where you're not having a lot of contact with other humans. Because you really want to drop out for a little while with, with that busyness of the outer life. And when you have a lot of other people around, you're constantly being reminded of of um, your previous, the way life normally goes for you. So pay attention to uh, your senses and where you feel you have a potential invitation to go deeper into the connection with the plants, the animals, the elements, uh, the birds, the uh, flowers, all the, the forms of nature which you love. And once you've found a spot like that, maybe in a little local park or a little patch of woods in your neighborhood, you might have to make a short trip of maybe five or 10 minutes, but try not to make it a big deal to get to. It's far better to find your immediate neighborhood that you can access easily. And then the next stage is once you've found that spot, and again, if you make it relatively private, it doesn't have to be perfect, but relatively private at least. Then you go there and you open your heart. You give your thanks back to Mother Earth and to nature and to Great Spirit, however you may envision that, <clears throat> and give thanks for the gift of this experience of being connected to the, the world of life and spirit. And you begin to... I like to use a simple thing we call the 11 direction ceremony where you create a field through a very simple universal ceremonial process. You set your intent to connect to the directions and to the mother earth and to the heavens and to the essence of yourself. And then through that, it opens up through the power of intent. It opens up a, a field effect that then supports the deepening of the experience of that spot as very special and sacred and a, a place that you would go to similar to going to a church or a synagogue or a temple. But this is a temple of the earth that you've actually benefited uh, in. You've been participated in helping create through the power of the intent that you bring to that place and the open heart and the good loving energy you bring to that spot. Once you've done those things, then you've, you've established uh, a place where you can go to on a regular basis maybe a daily basis, ideally, and spend a little time. But when you're doing this for the first time, you may only have an hour or two to spend, or maybe better yet, a whole half day at least. And begin to uh, settle into a very quiet inner space. I've noticed that most of the things that prevent people from making connection with their those nine experiential fields is blockages that arise that have been unattended to in our in the substrate of our being. Most of them boil down to either contractions or distractions of various kinds. Distractions might be emotional, they might be physical, they might be mental. The same is true for, for um, both contractions and distractions actually cause an interruption in the process of connection. So the way to heal that, for one thing, is to open the heart to yourself as well, as well as to this place that you're in in nature. And spend a little time doing a deep relaxation exercise. You open and use the power of your intent to open the, the blockages that you sense within yourself that are preventing authentic connectivity. And if you combine that power of deep relaxation with the profound power of presence, meaning you're not distracted by something about to happen or something that just happened. You're staying right with the moment of what's arising within you as a contraction. And then you go deeper and deeper with the releasing process. I've developed some uh, meditative processes where you very slowly scan through the entire body, releasing, 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 relaxing, 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 presencing, 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 in union because the relaxation and the presence work together as a team.
And what that does is unblock all these aspects of your of your your body and your your emotions and your mind. And then you're really ready to connect through these nine experiential fields because they're more open. They're more clear. They're more capable of making authentic connectivity. And of course, that's a lifetime delightful exploration that it opens in. And of course, you work within the context of those three natures. You become aware that always <clears throat> outer nature, inner nature, and true nature are intimately interconnected. And if you're really, if you're not familiar with your uh, true nature aspect, which many people are not, because the, the most obvious thing that holds our life is, is the awareness and the consciousness of life itself. But it's so obvious that we often forget to pay attention to it. <laughs> mm. So when, when you turn the experiential fields around and follow them back into the place of origination, then the senses and the experiential fields begin to point directly into that pure awareness aspect of your true nature. And when you do that, you begin to identify with that as your fundamental being instead of the form of yourself, the ideas of yourself, the names you have, the history you have, your story, and so on. Those are still there, but they're not the, the main theme. You begin to more and more identify with this core kind of boundless aspect of yourself, which is really birthless and deathless. And, um, <clears throat> and then, of course, it goes the other way, too. When you make that connection with this creative essence of yourself, that creativity flows out through the experiential fields and manifests as this amazing display of outer nature. And you really feel connected. So you go through a period process of first feeling disconnected because of your contractions. Then you enter a period of being authentically connected, maybe for the first time in your life since a baby. And then you begin to go deeper into that connection until you actually have an experience of being both connected and deeply unified almost, but there's still you, a separate you. And we call that the stage of communion. If you're deep into that, then you can have unitive experiences where say you and a tree or a flower or some being of nature are actually in a state of complete uh, unity. That's a wonderful experience when people begin to have that experience. And then <clears throat> ultimately you can begin to have that with everything within that sacred place that you've established in nature. And we've developed techniques to deepen that process to an absolutely profound level. And we finally reach a point where everything is experienced as kind of a sacred sphere that you're connecting to. Like uh, in the East, they talk about a mandala, experience a sacred wheel or a sacred sphere, because you're it's going out in all directions. Um, and you begin to feel that everything within your, your field of perception and experience is arising as a integrated whole system, kind of mandala or medicine wheel. And at that point, uh, if you can follow that back into your true nature, the whole thing emerges a, a very sacred event and a very sacred space. Now that, what I've just described, takes a little time to develop that level of, of uh, connectivity, but it's an extraordinary experience. It can change your life if you return to that repeatedly again and again and again. Your whole life system begins to shift into a very different kind of experience of what life is all about. And because you've made connection with your source aspect, your true nature aspect, it also opens the gates to kind of very pure creativity, which often meets exactly what is appropriate in the moment for you in your normal life flow. Uh, from an environmental perspective, because you've made a deep connection to nature through these nine fields, the kind of creativity that arises from this connection with, with true nature is often a kind of creativity that expresses itself with perfect insights as to how to bring yourself and the rest of culture back into balance with the rest of life. So it provides a well of creative insight for coming back into harmony and sustainability with the rest of the planet and nature. Thank you so very much, John, for sharing these profound uh, 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 principles and practices uh, uh, for 
the way of nature and um, uh, on the path kind of to connecting to uh, our uh, true deeper sources of, uh, of knowing and of awareness. Uh, I want to, as we close this, I want to go back to the beginning because mm -hmm. most of us, you know, I'm certainly including myself here, uh, will be finding themselves as a beginner of that path. So I just want to mention kind of uh, the, the few things that I heard you saying. So for you to, and then, you know, close with a question uh, on one area that wasn't that clear to me. So so you invited us to, to really be that, you know, some of us are still quarantined, right? So you may not be able, but then kind of you, you use maybe a planned kind of inside your space or maybe in your garden, if you have access to yeah, a garden uh, or a park nearby. So don't make too big a deal of it, but, you know, connect to such a place that is uh, attainable for you, you said. And then uh, you guided us kind of through a, a series of principles, pay attention uh, to the senses, uh, you know, and everything you, you shared with us around that. And then the next turn was uh, open your heart. Uh, and give your things back to Mother Nature uh, and kind of uh, entering kind of in that uh, deepened uh, field of connection. And then uh, you mentioned kind of uh, uh, the, the, the aspect of uh, the, the ceremonial aspect. So you mentioned kind of setting the intention and you mentioned as an example for that, uh, the, um, uh, the, the 11 direction uh, practice. Uh, and then from there, you went, uh, uh, okay, so when you do that, what happens, right? All the distractions, right? Contractions and distractions are coming up, the blockages. Uh, and that one way of dealing with them, so when that comes up, because that's certainly also something I experienced kind of when, when you guided me through the um, week-long uh, solo process, uh, and one thing, so, so your key guidance there was really open your heart, not only to others, not only to mother nature, but also to yourself exactly. uh, and to your own intention. And um, then you talked about deep relaxation and presence kind of as the twin principles kind of that, that um, uh, support each other and that can help us to connect to the deeper state of uh, communion. So, which you then elaborated um, uh, and, and pure awareness, which you um, elaborated on. I want to end with the middle piece of what you said, which is, I think the um, uh, paying attention to the senses, open your heart uh, to Mother Nature and really kind of the, the gratitude, particularly in this moment in time we are in. I think that is... Uh, quite intuitive for many of us. But then the third one, which is the ceremonial aspect and the 11th direction practice. So setting the intention, what actually does that mean? And how is it that um, I can, um, uh, so I can work or, or I can work with, um, uh, with my power of intention in a way that is more um, almost intentional, you could say. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to make it very simple, as simple as I can. Um, there's some confusion with people about intention versus will. They're different. Will is mostly coming from a sense of separate self. I want to do this. I will accomplish that. I, I will do this. I will not do that. And that type of consciousness. Intent is very different. Intent comes from a, a general feel. It actually ties in somewhat to that sensing thing we talked about before. But you sense being connected to, the, to a larger field of existence. And don't worry about whether it's there or not. Just trust that it's happening, just in it, like in a quantum sense. And with that trust, you allow something to arise that is a... Uh, a kind of uh, it, it's it's something which is an impulse, which serves both oneself and the entire field, and the and forms of that field, the forms of life and nature. And then, when that becomes clear, the intent 
as it becomes formed, as it's birthed really from the continuum of your being, then you place that intention in the field of pure awareness, pure consciousness, or the field of all being. And you place it and you release it into that field. And the most important thing, you completely let go of the result. You completely let go of the result. This is no control, no attempt to control or determine the end result of it. You trust that the entire uh, system is, is taking care of the details. And that, that, that's a very concise summary of the power of intent and how it comes into being and how it's different than will. Will in general doesn't work very well. It, it's it's a, a bad servant of this kind of process that we've been sharing here today. Whereas intent is the absolute core of virtually every aspect of the process, including doing a simple ceremony that you can make, kind of make up for yourself. The main thing is to have a good heart when you make an offering. I like to use some kind of a substance to offer. I usually take, here we use tobacco, sage, sweet grass, copal, and those kinds of things for offerings. But depending on where you live, you might have a different kind of material. Or if you have don't have anything with you for that, you can simply place the hand to the heart, feel it being filled with loving energy, and then offer that beautiful loving energy out to nature And as you do the ceremony. And if, you're, if people are interested in our 11 Direction Ceremony, they can find that, I think, in the Way of Nature website. We, we have it listed somewhere there. And we're in some of the books that we have. Um, but basically, if that's too complicated for you in the beginning, you could just do a simple honoring the four directions, north, south, east, west, and honoring Mother Earth, honoring Great Spirit and the heavens, and honoring the, the source essence of, of being. And um, <clears throat> and in general, we generally identify the, we start with the east and we identify that with creative upwelling and birth. The South, we identify with the opening of the heart and the fulfillment of the life force, where it kind of reaches its optimal level. And the West is the direction like the setting sun and the moon. We see all the old material that's no longer serving can be released into the westerly direction. So you purify and clear the decks as you face the West and release all the obscurations that no longer are helping and support your life or the planet. And then as you turn to the north, because all those blockages have been released, a kind of universal wisdom arises in the north. And uh, so we, that's a very simple sort of way to think about each of the directions. And of course, with the east, that birthing direction, the south, the energy that comes up from the birth of the life force, that also opens the heart. And so that the energy of the opening heart and the energy of the fullness of the life force brings out the blockages and the obscurations in your being, which then can be released in the West. And then when you turn to the North, the wisdom arises naturally because you've released the blockages to the inherent fundamental wisdom that's your birthright, that's actually part of your basic nature, your true nature. But that can be then revealed because much has been released, it's blocked that from, from being recognized. And then you, you adjust that in the North. And then you can... Repeat that several times if you wish, so you can go deeper and deeper like a spiral. But we usually conclude by honoring then Mother Earth and thank you for all that she's done to support us in all of nature and stand to support the world of, of spirit. I like the Native term, Native American term, great spirit. It's a beautiful term that mm. that is kind of universal. And then honoring that source essence of your own true nature at the very end by turning slowly in this in a clockwise spiral to complete. And then it's just standing in a, in a state of openness at the end of the ceremony to, to feel into uh, the union of inner, outer, and true nature. Thank you so much, John, for your uh, boundless uh, generosity uh, sharing this with us. Um, I can uh, attest myself that kind of the, the, the journey kind of uh, uh, with your guidance kind of was life changing for me. Uh, and um, I'm so thankful for you that kind of uh, with this um, master 
class you you're just uh, giving to us you uh, offer these teachings for so many more and for those of us and those of you who want to deepen uh, this journey sacredpassage.com kind of that's where uh, um, that's your website um, and that's where uh, also not only the programs you're offering but also the uh, the master students uh, that have been working with you over the years and over the decades kind of are offering these programs in various parts of the world so uh, sacredpassage.com and uh, thank you so much john for um, for the gift that you're providing to us well and by the way the those some of those regional groups we we've now transited to using wave nature .com as a, as a, as a main uh, website access, but many of the regional groups, uh, there are groups in Austria, Sweden, uh, Italy, New Zealand, uh, soon Taiwan, and so on. And, and you also mentioned Brazil, right? Because we have like people from all these places here in, in our community. In Brazil and Mexico as well. So they can look up Way of Nature with the, the country name of of that area and, and probably connect with the local regional group. So way of nature or, or sacredpassage.com. Right. Thank you so much, John. Thank um, you. Well, it's great to see you again. You look yeah. great. And uh, so uh, our plan is, uh, so if possible, to maybe in one of the upcoming Gaia sessions that, that we are hosting, uh, 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 to continue this conversation, go a little kind of deeper in some of the aspects that we just touched upon today. That'd be wonderful. Look okay, fantastic. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.